Welcome to the Hillside Podcast. We trust that you'll be impacted by listening to today's message. Good to have you with us. We have, we have a very special visitor with us this morning. I'm going to embarrass her. Meryl, why don't, why don't you stand? This is Meryl. I want to boast to you about Meryl. Meryl is part of Hillside history. All right, so before Faye was where Faye is now, Meryl was one or two before that. She was our church secretary administrator for a number of years, served us really well, currently lives in UK, her husband Greg and two kids, so we're thrilled just to have her with us. Meryl, welcome. One or two might remember her. <laughs> That's going back a while. So we're, we're launching a new series today. Um, called Being the Answer, and I want to go even a step in front of that and say actually today is not even about being the answer, it's about bringing the answer, which takes us into a whole new space forward of that. Taylor, this is your moment. She's been sitting there, sitting there, waiting for this space. Come here. Hello. Do you know Taylor? This is Taylor. She's an amazing person that we have, all of us have just got to know over the last couple of months or so. But she's going to tell us something of her story this morning. So this microphone is all for you. So why don't you tell us how you came to be sitting, being part of Hillside Church? Okay, cool. Cool, Go for it. So I'm an au pair for a little girl at um, Little Heroes. And I've been her au pair for about three years. Okay. And um, just a little bit of a backstory. Um, my mom's a Wiccan. So I grew up in that sort of, like, you know, environment. Um, never really open to being a Christian, ever. Um, my sister was saved about four years ago. So they tried to, like, plant some seeds and stuff, but wasn't interested at all. So I got this au pair job, and I found out it was at a church. So immediately I just put my walls up, like... Christians are going to come at me, they're going to try and preach the gospel, but like, I'm not interested. I knew for sure that I wasn't interested. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> then, um, yeah, I came to Fetch Riley. It was just like a normal day. It was a Wednesday. I remember it was a Wednesday. And um, Chanel, who's at the re- residency, came up and spoke to me. And like, I just wasn't expecting it at all. Like, she just came out of nowhere. And she just like spoke love over me, and she just prayed for me, and it was what, amazing. What did, what did she say to you? Um, <laughs> she says that um, God's just shining a light on me, and he just thinks I'm the most beautiful, and he just loves me so much. And that just like, my heart just like blew up. I was like, what? Really? That's crazy. Um, so it was just, it was crazy cool. So she invited me to the young adults home group, and I was like, cool, I'll definitely go. So I went, and that was the next Tuesday, and I was the first person there, which was really awkward, because I knew no one, so I just stood awkwardly in the corner, um, but everyone was just, like, so welcoming and so happy and just so, like, comfortable, and it was, it was really cool. So they did their little um, sermon thing, and I just sat there, like, the worship, and I was just like, this is weird, guys. <laughs> but I, I was touched. I was really touched. And um, yeah, then Candace and Chanel prayed for me. And that was the night I got saved. And that was wow. four months ago, yeah. Wow, wonderful. Yeah. Yay. So 
Taylor, did you did you know you were lost? No, not at all. I thought I had it all sorted. I, I like legitimately thought that life was life was good. Yeah. Okay, that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> and and what would you now, if you could meet yourself as you were three months ago? Yeah. What would you say to yourself if you the now you could speak to the the unsaved you, what would you say? A lot of things. <laughs> um, mainly just to like, stop putting those walls up and to just accept love and to just okay. accept God into your heart sooner. Cause, yeah, that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Because when, when, uh, when Chanel spoke to you, were you open, do you think? I wasn't open at first, but she, just, she came out of nowhere and she, <laughs> she opened me up. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's brilliant. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you, Taylor. Cool. That was amazing. Okay. Turn with me to Luke's Gospel, if you will, please, and chapter 15. That's a great story, isn't it? This is now, this is Hillside. This is what God is doing with us. Okay, Luke 15, and we're going to read a few, dotting around a few verses here and a few verses there. So let's, let's start from verse 4 for a little bit. It says, What man of you... Having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost, just so. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I'd lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And then dropping down to verse 21, the son comes home as we know the story. The son says to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And then 
pulling forwards into Luke chapter 19, the story of Jesus meeting Zacchaeus. And after he calls Zacchaeus down from the tree and says he's going to have dinner with him that day, verse 10 says this. Um, Where's verse 10 gone? Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So I want to talk about this today, which is simply that people are lost. Ordinary people are lost. Struggling people are lost. Successful people are lost. Sick people are lost. Healthy people are lost. People with problem kids are lost. People with great kids are lost. People filled with fear are lost and people filled with hope are lost. And Jesus' mission was not to heal the sick. He did heal the sick, but that wasn't his mission. He came, he said, to seek and to save the lost. And our mission to people, and this is really what I want to talk about today, has to be first and foremost, before and after everything else, to participate in the heart of Jesus to seek and to save the lost. We can house the homeless, and that's fantastic. We can feed the hungry, and that is absolutely amazing. We can give wisdom to the foolish. We can heal the sick. Jesus did heal the sick, but he didn't heal every sick person in the whole of Israel or the whole world. That wasn't what it was about. That wasn't the driving force behind them. We can encourage the downtrodden. We can give encouraging words, prophetic words to discouraged people. We can help people walk through their emotional trauma. But at the end of the day, if we are not participating in Jesus' mission to the lost, then actually we're missing the point. It's like everything else that we do, in a sense, is redecorating the Titanic. It's kind of moving the furniture around, it's repainting the walls, it's, it's making it all beautiful and whatever, but it's still the Titanic. And we can help people live a better life. We can help them have a better marriage. We can help them raise better kids. We can help them be more healthy. We can help them make better business decisions. We can help them even understand God's favor in their life. But if we don't participate in Jesus' mission to save the lost, then it's still the Titanic, which is only going in one direction. What we are about hillside here is this, this is a great community. It really, really is. And we have issues. Anybody ever had an issue here? Anybody never had an issue here? That's, that's what family is about. Family has issues, and that's okay. And we resolve them, and we have honest conversations that Jill has spoken about. And we, we, we work through these things, and we learn how to be family together. But this is amazing. But our 
message to the world is not come and experience a better lifestyle. This is not about we know how to do marriage better or we know how to raise our kids better. It's, it's not about, or we know how to do business, but it's nothing of that, although we do. It's not come and find family, although we are family. It's actually, there is a lost world. And that is what this thing fundamentally has to be about. And it is fundamentally about that because people are not just lost, people are eternally lost. Which shifts this whole thing to a new level altogether. And people are eternally lost simply because we are eternal. It's as simple as that. We will be raised. We will die, but we will be raised again, every single one of us. We are not destined to disappear. We, in that sense, are immortal beings. So if we are lost now, then we are lost forever and ever and ever and ever. And that kind of makes this a huge, huge issue for us. There's, there's a sermon C.S. Lewis preached called The Eternal Weight of Glory. And I quote from this when I'm teaching on honor. There's an incredible little passage in that that I teach out of because C.S. Lewis actually understood honor. Um, and, but it speaks into this issue as well. I want to read some of it to you. He says, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It's hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. And here's, here's a sentence that I've quoted many times. It says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. And understand his language there. He's talking about the eternal weight of glory that awaits every single one of us. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you would talk to one day, that, that you talk to, may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. In other words, in front of every person is this glorious future that awaits them. That's, that's what honor is about. That's what we have taught. And normally when I quote C.S. Lewis, I put a full stop there, but his sentence does not end in a full stop. It ends, it's a comma. So I want to read the rest of that sentence that I don't normally read to us because it would distract us. But this is what he says. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, comma, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, 
in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It's in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It's with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. It's quite profound, that, isn't it? That's why lostness is an eternal lostness, is simply because we are created for eternity. I read a novel in May. I, I read novels very slowly. I, I, I struggle to remember who's who. You know, I like novels with two characters, then I'm doing all right. But when they get complicated, I get lost in them. It takes me a while to get into them. I don't read them very often. Jill's part of this book club, and occasionally she feeds me one of your books and says, no, this is really good. So she bought, you bought it, Circe. Bought this novel called Circe in May for her book club. Um, and it's a recently published book. And it's the story, it's a novel about a Greek goddess called Circe. It's drawn from mythology. And Circe is a bit of an uppity character. She, she's too big for her boots. And she meddles in things that she shouldn't do. And she ends up offending the more important god. She's just a minor goddess, Circe. She's a nymph, a little, little thing. But she offends the big dudes, and in punishment, she gets banished to an island. Now, because she is a goddess, she is immortal, uh, and therefore her banishment to this island is forever. So the novel is all about Circe stuck on this island, and the only company she has is her own resentment. So she wasn't a particularly pleasant character because in Greek mythology, the gods and goddesses weren't really pleasant people. Uh, they, they, they were kind of projections of human vice, actually. But anyway, so here is Circe with only her own resentment to keep her company, living all alone on this island. And after a while, this, this boat passes by and these sailors decide they're going to pay her a visit. So here at last is some company, some people to talk to, and she throws a dinner for them and they have a party. But then in the night they rape her. So she thinks, well, that was not a great experience. So the next time a boatload of sailors arrives, she casts a spell on them and turns them all into pigs. So the years roll by in this story, and here is Circe getting more and more resentful and eaten up in her own miserable life and a herd of pigs that grows ever bigger and bigger and bigger. And as I read this story, I had this kind of bim-bang moment. I thought, actually, this is a picture of hell. Here is hell, is to be immortal without Jesus. That is a definition of hell, being immortal 
without Jesus? How would you like to spend eternity with yourself? And some pigs. And I can't remember the end of this. That's why I, I forget plots as well. I could read it again. I can't remember how it ends, but I, I could read it again tomorrow. And, oh, that's interesting. You know, we watch movies and Jill says, you've seen this one, have we? I've no idea, but I'll watch it again, you know. It's really cheap. I can watch the same programs over and over. People do not know that they are lost, by and large. Taylor had it taped. She had life sorted. She knew what was what. And that's okay. That's all right. That's to be expected. The coin did not know it had been lost. The widow loses the coin. Who experiences the pain of the loss? The widow. The coin experiences nothing because it's a coin. All right? It doesn't know it's been lost. The sheep probably doesn't know it's been lost. It's happily running on, finding fresh grass and exploring interesting places until probably one day it panics and realizes it's all alone and doesn't know how to get home again. But by and large, the sheep doesn't know it's lost. Even the prodigal son didn't really know he was lost. He was having a good time for a while and then it kind of went bad and he probably would not have expressed it as, woe is me, I'm lost. But he realized that he did need to go home and find his father. Sorry? When he was alone with his pigs. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a theme in this, isn't there? Yeah. There's a theme in this. The, the, the loss is experienced by the one who originally possessed. The father felt the loss. Our lostness is experienced by our heavenly father more than we could ever begin to imagine because he is the one who has lost his children. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost because they were the father's lost children. He says, where are my people? Where are the people that I created? They are lost to me. So he sends his son to go and to seek and to save that which is lost. Now there are manifestations of lostness in people's life. With, with, without a heavenly father, we, we do stuff. We have to become our own savior. We have to work hard at keeping our life together. We have to learn how to cope with pain and how to cope with disappointment and, and how to cope with fear and all that stuff. And we, we make our own plan. And, and you can see stuff in people's lives. You can see the, the, the distractions that we fill ourselves with. Os Guinness said we are an idiot culture entertaining ourselves to death. And that's, that's a lost world. We, we fill our lives with stuff because the silence is too deafening. We, we, we can't cope with the emptiness, so we fill it with stuff. We, we, we can see it in the addictions that people get caught up in, in, in the aggression they manifest, in the, the adrenaline junkies, the, the vanity, the ambitions, the anger, the victimhood, the racism. You can, you can name it. These are all ultimately manifestations of our lostness. But for some, 
they are symptom-free. You can be really sick and symptom-free. That's, that's kind of the nature of things. And, and I don't want us to get caught up on looking for manifestations to prove something. Aha. See, that proves we're right and you're wrong. Look, what's, look, look how terrible. It's, it, it's like we've got to prove we've got our life together more than the world has. And sometimes we don't. Let's be honest. Sometimes we are foolish, weak, naive people and the world has got things much more together. That's possible. But that's not what it's about. That's not the issue. And the danger is, as a church, is, is because we like to focus on these things because they prove that we've got something the world doesn't, we end up trying to solve the wrong problems. We're trying to help people with their addictions, and that matters. We try to, try to help them out of racism and anger and, and, and all this stuff, but that's never the issue. The issue fundamentally is that we are, as humanity, lost people. So we have the answer to a problem that people don't know they have, by and large. And if we wait for people who are desperate for salvation... See, if, if Chanel's first approach to Taylor had been, can I tell you about Jesus? What would Taylor have said? Nah. <laughs> Get lost. No, thank you. She might have been polite. I don't know. I don't know how polite she is. She's not polite. No. No, just, just <laughs> get lost. No. Because people don't know that they need Jesus. They don't know they need Jesus because they've never met Jesus, actually. So the next thing I want to say today is that people really need to meet Jesus. Bill Johnson says that we owe the world an encounter. You don't owe the world an argument. You ever tried to argue someone into salvation? <laughs> Anybody tried that? The big debate. Has it, did that work for you? No. Okay. We owe the world an encounter. They need to meet Jesus. They don't know. The sheep doesn't know it's lost until it sees the shepherd again. The son does not know what he's given up until he sees the father's face with the love and the longing for him. The coin doesn't know that it's been lost until the widow throws a party. No, I'm being silly there. But meeting Jesus is what tells people what they've missed out on. That's the whole point. So we owe them an encounter with Jesus who is full of love and truth, full of power and grace, full of wonder. He is the King of glory. And, and again, we've kind of divided Jesus. You know, there's Jesus the Savior and Jesus the Lord, and you've Met Jesus, your Savior, do you know, have you, have you received him as your Lord kind of thing? He is one and the same person. He is indivisible. He is the king of love. And to encounter Jesus is to fall flat on your face, actually. Because the true Jesus has eyes like fire. He is awesome. He is filled with compassion, but he is awesome by the same token. 
So we need to bring people to an encounter with Jesus. This is where they discover what they never had. This is when they say, why did nobody tell me? Did you ever say that, Taylor? Why did nobody tell me this before? Well, maybe you couldn't be told before. And that's reality. Whoever got saved and said, I wish I didn't know this before. That's the reality. We discover what we have missed out on. And we want this. And people meet Jesus in you. That's really what this whole series is about, that people meet Jesus in you. And it might be that you have a word of his love for them. It might be that you have an action of his love for them. It might be that you pray for them for healing. It might be that you have a prophetic word for them. It might be that you give them a lift when everybody else failed to do so. It might be that you turned up at their door when they were desperate. It might be a thousand things, but Jesus is revealed. Jesus is manifest. Jesus is unlocked into their life. And in that moment, they are undone. Taylor was undone by a word of unexpected love and appreciation. She, her defenses were down. Right? Normally she had walls up here, but in that moment she wasn't expecting it and the love bomb made it over the wall and bam, it exploded. And wow, what is this all about? I am undone. Everything is pulled apart in me because of that moment. Because someone has been courageous. Because someone has been prepared to be Jesus to me at this moment. But people need more than meeting Jesus. And that's also what this series is about. Lots of people met Jesus. That's what Jesus did. He went and met people. And the gospel accounts are full of people who met Jesus. The rich young ruler met Jesus. And he didn't go away happy. He went away sad. The Pharisees met Jesus. And they went away angry. Herod met Jesus. He went away disappointed because he was hoping to see a miracle or two. Pilate met Jesus and he went away troubled. The people of Nazareth met Jesus and they went away insulted. The people of Gadara met Jesus. Remember that was where the, the guy with all the demons lived. They met Jesus and they went away frightened. And Judas met Jesus and he went away suicidal. So meeting Jesus isn't, is necessary, but it's not sufficient. And, and I think Hillside, over the years, we've grown to the place where we are comfortable with being Jesus in people's lives. We're comfortable with releasing something of heaven for people. I want you to experience his love. But actually, to stop there is not enough. Because more needs to happen beyond that. There's got to be a step that goes beyond that thing. Because people 
also need to repent. And that was where all these characters that I've spoken of fell short. You see, for, for, for Taylor, it didn't end with that first encounter. It started there. There was a meeting with Jesus. I, your story is so great. Eh? You, you illustrate all the points so beautifully. It starts there where, where love breaks down the barriers of somebody's heart and they, they, are, they are inexplicably and suddenly opened up to the person of Jesus. But there was a second encounter. What, what, what did they ask you? Can you remember before they prayed for you? Did they ask you if, you, if they could pray for you? At the home cell, what do they ask you? So, Chanel was just talking to me afterwards, and she's like, do you, do you want to let Jesus into your heart? Like, do you want to be saved? Okay. And I said, yes. Okay. So, so, so there is a second question beyond, which is, do you want to let Jesus into your heart? Do you want to be saved? There is, there is a change of life path. That's where the rich young ruler was not prepared to go, because he was on this path and Jesus said, that's great, but here's a new path for you to walk on. And he says, actually, no, I don't know that I really want to do that. So people need to repent. And this is where we get tied up in knots. We really make it so complicated. We get really, really confused. We don't quite know what to say to people. Um, because the fundamental question is we don't know what are they repenting of. That's a really good question. And it reveals a lot. You know, I'm actually repenting of getting caught. Yeah, I'd do it again, but I wouldn't get caught next time. You know, that kind of matters what we are repenting of. And we feel like we have to find something bad for them to repent of. Do you know that feeling? So they can't get saved until they are confronted with being bad. So we have to dig around for a bit of pornography or something to, it's, okay, well that's, you know, that's, or, or, or you got angry with your wife. We have to find something which illustrates what they're needing to repent of. And, and, and it becomes superficial and childish and ridiculous at that point. And we kind of drag out the Ten Commandments and, and, and say, well, how many of these have you broken? And it's like, no, this, this, is, this is really not what it's about somehow. This is kind of missing the point. Have you been selfish? You know, well, yes, but we, that's what human beings are like, you know, all of us. Even, you know, even born again, people can be selfish sometimes. Believe me, pastored enough of them. It's true. So we're looking for a problem and we're looking for the wrong problem because we're not quite sure what the problem is. I had a friend, a colleague at work many years ago who he was South African based in Cape Town um, and he had to go on a business trip for our company to France, to Paris. And I don't think he'd ever traveled outside of South Africa before. So he flies into Paris, goes into the city, and the place where our, our office was, it was about an hour's train journey outside of Paris. So he gets on the train, and off he goes out of Paris. 
And about half an hour later, the guard comes around and he doesn't speak a word of French. But this guard is getting very, very excited and agitated and shouting at him and, and he has no idea what's going on. And it turns out that he, not speaking any French at all, arrived in, in Paris, not realizing that the time zone was one hour different from South Africa. So he got on the train at the right platform and he was sitting in the right seat, but he was an hour early. And this train wasn't going that way, it was going that way. And in the end, it took him eight hours to get back to where he was supposed to be going, simply because he didn't change his watch. He got everything else right, but that he got wrong. So here is my friend sitting on, and, and on French trains, it's a little bit like an aircraft, you, you buy a ticket for a specific seat. So he was, he thought, in the right seat, in the right carriage, on the right train, but he wasn't, he was all wrong. And everything he was doing was wrong. He wasn't even in the right, he was in the wrong seat. He was looking at the wrong person opposite him. He was breathing the wrong air. He was drinking the wrong drink. Everything he was doing was wrong. Why? Because fundamentally he was on the wrong train. And if you're on the wrong train, then nothing you do is going to be right. From that point, everything else is wrong. And it is as simple as that. That's what the deal is. The repentance is not about moving to a different seat. It's not about, about being nicer to the person opposite you on the train. The repentance is about getting on the right train. That's what the deal is. That's what the issue is. So it's really, really simple. The offense and the punishment are one and the same thing. And if you can remember this, it makes it so easy. The offense and the punishment are one and the same thing. The offense is to live without Christ. That's the offense. And what's the punishment? Is to live without Christ. Isn't that easy? What we got wrong is what God will give to us. He gives you the desires of your heart. You ever quoted that verse? Trust your way to the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. If your desire of your heart is to live without Christ, he actually gives you the desire of your heart. And what we are repenting of, what, what Taylor needed to repent of, was nothing more complicated, nothing more sinister, more dastardly than choosing a life without Jesus. That's the fundamental bottom line. So, so here is simply the choice. Do you want eternity with Jesus or without Jesus? That's the repentance. What do you want? There are only two options. There is Christ or there is sin. Well, there's nothing in between those two. There's no other way. And what is not Christ is actually sin. There's two trees in the garden. There's the knowledge of good and evil, which says we can do this by, we've got this God, we can do this by ourselves. 
or there is the tree of life, which is Christ. There's no other trees. Well, there are other trees, but there's no other trees that matter. So it's without Christ or with Christ. Paul says, whatever is not of faith is sin. So it's with Christ or it's without Christ. What kind of eternity do we choose? Every other manifestation of evil, everything else that we can list, every murder, strife, envy, hatred, lust, rape, stick it all in there, is fundamentally a manifestation of that choice. With Christ or by myself. And by myself is the tree that leads to all that other stuff. So, at the cross, the world says to Jesus, we don't want you in our world. Is that right? That's what the cross is about. Jesus, you don't fit here. You don't belong here. You are a troublemaker in a world that we've got this taped. So we're going to get rid of you. That's what the cross is about. And in that sense, every person who chooses life without Jesus crucifies him afresh. Because saying, this is my world, and Jesus, I don't want you in my world. I want you out of my world. This is profound, eh? but it's so simple. It's really, really, really simple. So people, lastly, need to know his forgiveness on the cross. Because we have all been in that place of saying, Jesus, get out of my world. And we need his forgiveness for the rejection that we have manifested towards him. So the cross is a place where two amazing things happen. The cross is the place where first people say, Jesus, get out of my world, and I'm going to kill you. That's the way you get out of my world, as if I kill you. But the cross is also the place where he says, I forgive you. And actually, salvation comes through the cross. That is, that is where it all happens. That's the, that's the pivotal point. That's the, that's the transaction. That's the, that's the exchange that takes place where our rejection meets his forgiveness. And that's the place at which we repent, which we say, actually, I am changing my mind. Repentance is a change of mind. I used to think I wanted a world without Jesus in it. But now I want a world with Jesus, the King of love, right there in the middle. That's my repentance. Jesus, will you forgive me? I love this gospel. It's amazing. It, it is so beautiful. It is so profound. It is such a, a rich thing that has been entrusted to us. This is the thing we have the privilege, the message 
we have the privilege of carrying. This is, this is why the series is, I think it's more than being the answer. I think it's about bringing the answer. That we don't stop at healing people, we don't stop at loving people. But we, too, we can talk to them about the cross as well. So let me tell you about Jesus. This Jesus who has just healed your sore leg, let me tell you about him. He's the king of glory. Do you want to live with him? Can we do this? I want to say today we can. And I'm, I'm the world's worst evangelist, I really am. I mean, I, I, my Christian walk, I started off with YWAM knocking on doors and handing out tracts. I've, I've, I've been there, done that. I've spoken to people on the streets. I've, 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 I've done it all. And I've, I've had the horror stories and the great stories and whatever. But we can do this. We can be the people who carry a message that we can give to people. That Jesus offers them a better quality of eternal life. Never mind sorting your business and your family out now. He can sort out eternity for them. Are we here to do this? Absolutely. This is the commission that he gives us. This is, this is and, and Jesus came to announce the kingdom and it's, it's bigger than an individual life, absolutely. But it does start with an individual life. It starts with people we meet. It starts with the people Jesus wants to meet through you. Jesus still wants to meet people. He's just going to do it through you and through me. So I wonder if we can stand together. I just want to ask, as we, as we pray, before anything else, is there anybody here who has maybe been in a place of uncertainty about whether you actually want Jesus in your world or not? Do you want a world with Jesus or a world without Jesus? And kind of being in church, you think, well, you assume people are here because they want a world with Jesus. But I don't want to presume that this morning. And if you, if you have been in a place of uncertainty on that question, that's, that's the point of repentance. That's the point of coming to the cross. That's the point of receiving his forgiveness. And when you wave a hand at me absolutely right now, if you know that's the place you're at, I really, really do want to give space for this because because this is a key, key moment in people's lives. There is no greater moment. The cross is that place. So if you're needing to meet Jesus afresh at the cross, if you're needing not that first encounter that Taylor spoke of, if not, not, not about knowing his love, 
but about responding rightly to his love. If you're in that space today, won't you wave a vigorous hand at me right now? Okay, that's awesome. There is no one. So we've all voted for eternity with Jesus. That's fantastic. Praise God. So I want to pray for us. So Father, we present ourselves to the Father who has lost children. We present ourselves today to the one who looks out at the road waiting for his prodigals to come home. And Father, we want to be part of your family, part of your army, part of your apostolic mission. And we today want to receive the commission to be bearers of good news. Today we want to receive your mandate. We want to receive your power to be witnesses to Jesus. We thank you that you have given, you've entrusted to us words of eternal life. And I pray that you would help every one of us, that you would empower every one of us, that you would encourage and equip every one of us, even this week, to be people who are bold in being Jesus to the people we meet, but more than that, to speak to them of his cross and to speak to them of his salvation. Lord, we, we, we say yes to you today. We say yes, we are those people. We, we will no longer run away, but we will be those people. We will be those bold people. We will be those people who are ready for you for the sake of your lost children, for the sake of the power of the cross, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of you, King Jesus. We, we step forward into that place and we say, here we are, we are available to you. Thank you, Jesus. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear your story if you've been encouraged by this episode. You can connect with us on Facebook or leave a review on our podcast.